Hello, I'm Matt Chorley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. To be clear, it's called Politics Without the Boring Bits. It used to be the Red Box podcast. Before that, about a million years ago, it was the Times Opinion podcast. But now it's called Politics Without the Boring Bits, the same as my Times radio show. It seems to have confused a couple of you. Some reviews posted on the Apple Podcast app from an avid listener. I've never seen your face, love the podcast, but you changed the podcast artwork and it scared the living daylights out of me. I thought it's some fake podcast invading my library. After several weeks, I thought, let me try it, and it's you. Well, I'm glad that you found me. Slightly less welcome, but, you know, always good to hear from Pete. Matt, love the show, but get rid of the bug-eyed picture. It's what Jimmy Savile used to do. Thanks for that, Pete. All comments about my face and the artwork and the name, or indeed even the content of the podcast, you can email me matt at times.radio or post a review on Apple Podcasts. Right, coming up on today's episode, it's the return of the exit interviews where I sit down with one of the dozens of MPs who are standing down at the next election to ask, why are you leaving us? Today, former Cabinet Minister Chloe Smith on arriving into the Commons as the baby of the House, all of her many leaders from Boris Johnson and David Cameron right the way through to Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak and what she's going to do next. Plus, Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on whether or not drama ever changes the world after the Post Office Scandal TV adaptation has caused such a political stink. And don't forget, if you like what you hear on the podcast, you can catch me with Politics Without the Boring Bits on Times Radio. Just listen on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker or download the Times Radio app. That's Politics Without the Boring Bits, weekdays from 10. Hope you had a good weekend. I was up early Sunday morning to go on the telly box. Yeah, I was on Sky News uh, yesterday morning with Wilfred Frost, David Frost's son. How could I turn down the chance to do breakfast with Frost on a Sunday? Yeah, truth is, uh, Wilfred Frost was actually in for Trevor Phillips. But, you know, it was an opportunity to do it. While I was there, bumped into Keir Starmer in the Sky Studios. Yeah, he was on. Uh, I had a chat with him. Apparently, uh, he's hurt his knee uh, playing football, which is why it's all in the papers today. He's playing football and he's all uh, all strapped up. Uh, but Keir Starmer, up early to be on the telly, probably didn't have time for any breakfast. A little bit of fish, a little bit of cheese. Anyway, he was on telling Rishi Sunak to set a date for the election. I can't help feeling that all he really wants to do is to get two years clocked up of his own premiership, and that means he's putting vanity before country. Surely not, surely not. Uh, Talking of putting vanity before everything else, uh, I was on uh, with uh, Rachel Johnson and uh, Christian Amanpour from CNN. A heavyweight panel, apparently. And uh, right at the end of the programme, Wilfred Frost asked us what uh, we thought is going to happen this year. year ahead prediction from from each of you Matt what, what, what's your kind of key call for the year uh, well I'm going on tour again I'm doing my stand-up tour the I'm, first time I did it you know they caught <laughs> Theresa May called an election the second time war broke out I'm going on tour again March the 1st so anything could happen I'm glad you plugged that not your show because your show's on the same time as mine so uh-huh. people should buy tickets to your tour rather than tune in mattchorley.com that's all you need yes got it in <laughs> mattchorley.com it's all you need it's all you need yeah, uh, it's, something will definitely happen. The, the, the tour kits off March the 1st, right the way through to the end of April. So in that two months, something will happen. Uh, details at mattchorley.com. And, and the news just keeps on coming. On Friday, because nothing had happened for ages, I dropped this. Roll up, roll up. It's Resignation Friday on Times Radio. Yet nobody had resigned on a Friday for ages. Loads of people have previously resided on a Friday. If you listen on a Friday, you'll know uh, just how many people have resided on a Friday. Boris Johnson and Nadine Doris and Les Ferdinand and a whole load of people. Uh, nobody has resigned for ages. So I dropped the feature. And then on Friday, Chris Skidmore resigned. Uh, he's quitting as an MP, meaning a third by-election headache for Rishi Sunak, on top of the rows over tax and immigration. There's a big vote happening later on oil and gas, which some Tories are going to rebel on. Then there's the post office scandal. Uh, which we were, we were because of this ITV drama, uh, Mr. Bates versus the Post Office. We hammered away at it last week. Uh, and in fact, have done for some time on the show. You know, we could have always done more. There's always a lot going on in the news. I've had, but I've had so many people 
getting in touch online saying, why haven't you, why have you only just woken up to this? Why are we only in the last week? But it's a, last September, standing on a crazy golf course in Bournemouth near a waterfall while wearing a tricorn hat. I asked Ed Davey about his role in the saga. Sub-postmasters ending up in prison, ending up, some of them died without knowing that they were uh, actually innocent. And do you wish you'd done more? Well, I'm not just surprised, but by shocked. Yeah. Because uh, we did, I did ask questions of post office. Uh, and I said to the post office managers, you know, I hear from some said postmasters, there's a big injustice. Is it true? What are you doing about it? And they were very firm in their response. Yeah. Um, and you know, one of the challenges is you have to believe what some of these managers tell you. You can ask some questions, you can push and push, but that's what we got back. And I, I, I do wish I hadn't taken their word for it. I, yeah. I wish I'd said, I don't believe what you're telling me. I don't believe what my official are telling me. And I wish I'd gone back further and forth further and maybe finding in post a little longer I've done that yeah. <laughs> it's a great idea doing that next to a waterfall so yes we have been asking questions about it for some time and we will keep on that and a major capital letters big news story yeah the Times reporting that the annual CES tech show in Las Vegas is happening unveiling the latest weird and wonderful gadgets that are coming our way including an indoor food smoker an AI robot mop and a voice-activated B-Day. The Columnists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. And we say hello. About a probably Happy New Year, because I've not spoken to you yet. Uh, Happy New Year, Libby. Happy New Year to you too. And Happy New Year to Rachel Sylvester. Happy New Year. I think that's now the full set of Happy New Year's complete, <laughs> so that's very good. Very good. Right, let's talk then about uh, schools. Obviously, you've looked at this a lot, Rachel, with the uh, the education, the Times Education Commission. Government launching a campaign today to tell parents uh, that odd days away from school can damage children's mental health as well as academic results. Uh, they're telling children that they should go to school even they've got a light cold. Uh, Labour is banging the same drum. Here's Labour Shadow Education Secretary Bridget Phillipson speaking to Kate and Adam on Times Radio on Sunday. Crucial to that is making sure that we've got more mental health support in our schools. So we've got a commitment uh, to guarantee a mental health counsellor in every secondary school. Alongside that, breakfast clubs for our primary school children. So making it easier to get to school, that's off the start to the school day. And lots more besides. I think it is so important that we reset that relationship between government and schools, but also between schools and families, because at the moment it feels very fractured. I believe it can be fixed, but there has to be some urgency behind that, and we're not seeing it at the moment from the Conservatives. Now, Rachel, we've seen, since the pandemic, a big increase in, in absence and persistent absence. This is clearly a problem, but it's a problem slightly the government's making, given how many times they shut schools and implied, therefore, that not going to school wasn't that big a deal. Yeah, and it's a huge issue. So it's something like a fifth of kids now are persistently absent. That's 1.5 million children. I mean, this is a huge thing. And that's this missing a, a day or more every fortnight. It's missing, yes. Yes, I think the, it, the, the defini- think that's definition. the definition, isn't yeah. it? Um, but it's, you know, this is a serious problem. Um, the government's response is sort of 3,600 kids are going to get some mentoring. I really don't think that faces up to the scale of the thing. And it's disproportionately the poorest children who are most affected. Um, one thing that I think is really important to remember is that there's a sense perhaps that this is sort of naughty children playing truant mm. um, or feckless parents not making their children go to school. I don't think that's right. I, I, when I spoke to Rachel D'Souza, the Children's Commissioner, about this, she said that all her research showed that it was a lot to do with mental health and also special educational needs. Um, but also, as you said at the beginning, children and parents have got out of the habit of school, so that needs to be rebuilt. Um, and remember the sort of rescue post-pandemic education rescue package that Kevin Collins proposed was turned down by the government. By Rishi Sunak. By Rishi Sunak as Chancellor. So, you know, th- there's a succession of things, but I don't think they're taking it seriously. And they're also sort of trying to blame parents rather than dealing with the underlying causes. It's striking, we've obviously had uh, COVID, you know, the various lockdowns and the, you know, there was the, they went back for one day, didn't they? In January 2021, they went back for a day and then they were off again. Alongside that, Libby, we've had strikes as well and the implication there again from teachers, you know, parents and children getting the message, well, you know, it's okay because we're having tomorrow off, we're having the next day off because of 
of strikes. And I suppose as well, Libby, the the advent of working from home has made it easier. You know, I, you know, the days of like you've got to get up and go to school because I've got to go to work. Well, these days it's easier. Parents say, "Oh, it's fine, stay at home." I'll tell the office I can work from home, and you know, there's, there's quite a lot of social change which has gone on, Libby. Yes, I suppose so. I mean, the thing is, it really does matter because it matters to those individual children. It also matters because it is the beginning of the work ethic. You know, it's the beginning yeah. of the sense that, yeah, you get up and you go and do stuff. Um, I, I wouldn't associate it that much with the working from home because I think probably the people who are most likely, you know, to, to be working from home are also the most likely to be trying to get their children off to school as well. I don't know. I mean, I haven't got figures on this, but it, it really it does matter and of course the teacher strikes have not been good and the the central thing of course is that during covid children school children were at the absolutely bottom of the government's priority heap they really didn't care about the closing of the schools very few ministers sort of put their heads up and said no this is disastrous we mustn't close the schools other countries haven't closed schools uh, but we'd close them with just a kind of light airy wave of the hand and i think that uh, that was a serious mistake and that is still hanging on over us I think there's another thing that's interesting is schools, uh, there's not enough at school to encourage pupils or parents um, to think it matters. So when we did the Education Commission, two thirds of parents said they didn't think the education system was preparing their kids properly for either life or work. Um, and in terms of children, it's a very narrow definition of success. Um, so if you're struggling, if you've got special educational needs, you're pretty much too often written off um and it it gives a sense that failure you know uh, if you're not fitting into the sort of narrow academic box um that the education system currently values so i think it's also about the sort of narrowness and the sort of um exam focused uh pressure of the system that's making it off-putting to some children and parents and i suppose more broadly as well that you've got the, the sort of sense that the education system has been in quite, you know, teacher shortages, you know, pe- teachers chopping and changing, particularly at secondary schools, pe- teachers chopping and changing all the time. The rack thing with schools suddenly closing because of crumbling concrete, this sort of sense of chaos and, and mess and, you know, it's not that good and, you know, you never get through to the school because they're all really busy and overstretched and, and all that, that sort of stuff. Libby, I suppose the big question is, and what do you do about it? Because a, a speech by, you know... I'm sure some uh, of the nation's school children are, are following politics, but they're probably not going to be gripped by a speech by Bridget Phillipson uh, like the rest okay. of us. So what, what can practically be done, do you think? Well, local authority budgets are being cut and cut and cut and cut and cut, as you know, and they used to be truant officers, didn't they? They used to be quite, you know, you used to expect a knock on the door if your child was, was persistently absent from school, and I think a lot of that has simply gone. Um, and I, you know, I think that there is that. There is also making school more attractive, making sure that schools are very safe, bully-free places, that they are places where a kid wants to go because it's stimulating, it's interesting, it's definitely something to do. You know, not a terribly frightening place. You know, where where the best you can do is avoid the rest of the class sort of shouting you down. Uh, so I think you know that the nature of schools themselves matters a lot. And also, I think it's um, dealing with the sort of underlying causes of this rather than just the symptoms. So more mental health support for children at school uh, and making the system seem relevant, uh, making them see the purpose of school, both for parents and children. Well, we'll see what happens. We'll see if everyone's back at school by the end of the week, having been told to go there by Gillian Keegan and Bridget Phillipson. Uh, right, let's move on, because I want to ask about uh, the way that drama can change... But if not the world, then politics. Uh, a lot of uh, of the show last week was taken up with talking about the post office scandal after I watched the uh, uh, Mr Bates versus the post office on ITV. Um, uh, Libby, other example... In fact, somebody messaged in on this. Uh, Dominic and Whitby says, I can't remember TV drama having so big an impact in a wider context since Cathy Come Home. Are there other similar examples of drama reaching beyond the screen? Libby. I think Kathy Come Home is the most obvious one because although the charity uh, shelter was already forming, the charity crisis, I think, came straight out of it. And it it shocked people into realising the reality in people's lives. And that is what's happened with 
with the this ITV is excellent and very very measured very skillful ITV series which if you watch it in conjunction with their sort of true life documentary um about it you know it's very very you know everything is very close although of course in drama it has to be confined i think people don't take in complicated stories like this enough and ministers didn't take it and rishi sunak had the nerve to say that oh we've all been very shocked last week what do you mean why weren't you shocked before this has been going on for ages I've written about it four times in in you know in the, the last four years. I've had had op-ed pieces in the Times. Everyone's saying the papers don't do it, but people don't concentrate as much. And when they see sort of well-known, well-liked actors rather brilliantly getting into character in a sort of low-key but intense way, suddenly they think gosh, these are real people, gosh, these were real wasted lives. But I think, as I say, it took drama, it took ITV drama, um, and uh, this is interesting at a time when all our all support for the arts has been gradually <laughs> sort of prized away from everybody, councils and arts council. You know, we need drama sometimes to bring things home to the public at large and make them angry. But it hasn't often happened uh, in, in a way since Cathy come home. That, that's what's interesting. We, we don't seem to have had other examples I can think of that really worked. I think, I think it's really fascinating that it's about the power of stories in politics, isn't it? And the power of the human narrative. So, so much of politics is about policy or wonkery or think tanks or facts and figures and arguments and statistics. Actually, what really cuts through to people is the human narrative, the st- the, the mythology, if you like, um, the story. Uh, and that is, it's not, it's, it's a true stories. It's not drama. It's not fiction. Yeah. Um, but I think sometimes politicians forget. I think both Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer are very head focused and actually politician, uh, people, voters are quite driven by their hearts, you know, rightly. It's a sort yeah. of emotional yeah. intelligence is yeah. needed. And that's what drama brings out, perhaps in a way that, um, these sort of yes. commons reports don't. I remember going that, to. I went to interview the several of these postmasters um, two or three years ago for the Times magazine, and I told the story all through those human accounts, and I found it absolutely shocking and moving uh, to speak to them all because of the human mm. side. Yes, well, there's a, there's another thing that injustice hits very hard, and one of the interesting things about the way the ITV thing went because of course a lot of it was set in rural areas you've got these great wonderful shots of green fields and dales and hills and it sort of spoke subliminally to what we hope england is this is what we hope britain is all about uh and what britain actually was all about was a lot of very high paid rich careless people uh stamping on smaller people and so that the, the the contrast was interesting it yeah, was yeah, yeah, what yeah. kind of country are we oh my god we're not nearly as good a one as we thought we were and it, there's something about the the the, the sub postmaster there's the sort of the pillar of the yep. village who knows everyone you know um yeah with discretion and 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 all of that the, the, and hard work, the, hard, hard work hard work too much, always being there for not much in return it has mm. to be said and then and then obviously then the so the, the the then personal impact of the injustice against them is all the greater because you know they're they're put on a pedestal in their local community and so the the fall um yeah uh, that's what the um sub postmasters that i spoke to found so difficult it was a sort of feeling that they'd be would be judged by their communities that they were being treated as mm. criminals rather than the financial um hit or even yeah. being locked up it was the sort of sense of shame yeah. that, which is why this was this was imaginary money. This yeah. this is the extraordinary thing. This is the computer has is out to get you. This money wasn't stolen. It didn't exist. That's the point. If it did exist and they got it back from the postmasters, it's in the post office's profits. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah, mm. and um, uh, yeah, no, it's 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 what and actually the point you were making, Rachel, about you know the 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 sense of injustice, rightly that some of these people feel, is why some of them don't want a, a bill to be rushed through Parliament to pardon them all in a sort of blanket way. They want their day in court. They want a judge, as as the first 90 or so uh, got a couple of years ago, where a judge strikes out their cases to make clear that they, uh, they've been exonerated. Um, there's lots in the papers today about Ed Davey and the questions he's got to answer. I asked him questions about it in September on a golf course. I asked him again last week. Uh, he was on the show. Uh, but in fact, here is Alan Bates from uh, the real Alan Bates, this is. Uh, I asked him what he'd want to ask Ed Davey. 
I'd, I'd quite like to know is how much briefing did post office executives do to him beforehand to to steer him away from meeting with our, with ourselves? I mean, what was said at that time? Why didn't he meet with us? It wasn't it wasn't new. There'd been a, quite a bit in the media about it then, and the MPs were involved at that point. And so this is how Ed Davey responded when he was on the show last Wednesday. I was deeply misled uh, by uh, post office executives. And, and Alan, Alan is right to raise the point. They didn't come clean. Um, and there was definitely attempts to stop me uh, meeting them. And I regret that we didn't do more, but we were clearly misled. I think ministers from all political parties were misled by the post office uh, executives. And now they're dragging their feet. They're not bringing forward evidence to inquiry. And, and that is just outrageous. Is he in trouble on this, Rachel? Is this a bit of party political deflection going on? I think he is in a bit of trouble, actually, because I th although at one level it's a bit unfair because you've had ministers from all parties um, who are dealing with the post office, um, but he is the most high profile now. He is a party leader. And a lot of the, cause a lot of the others have gone, Vince Cable and exactly, Norman Lamb and Joe so on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the current you know conservative ones obviously aren't the leader of their party um but i think you know it's difficult to know what he can say apart from apologizing yeah. um, and there were you know in to be fair to him he if they lied to him and they lied to ministers from different parties as well um you know the blame does need to be spread but i don't think it's easy for him at all what do you think Libby? Well, I, I think Ed, Ed Davies, obviously, he, the trouble is he's so very fond of calling for other people to resign over over failings uh, that, that, I mean, it's it's obvious as a Times has got a very cruel list today of people <laughs> demanded should resign. Uh, it's, I, I, I thought that was an act of slight cruelty on the paper's behalf. But 31 calls yes, for people no, to resign, <laughs> including at one point all he's high conservative MPs. <laughs> yeah, but but he 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 was it, the thing is he was lied to by the post office, and that this is the trouble. So the post office was set up. People aren't talking about this enough. You set up this arm's length thing, which is to be run like a business and is ordered to make a profit and to have executives and to act like a business and it's arm's length. Uh, but it's still totally owned by the government, and it has this fantastic power simply to bring its own prosecutions. Um, I think we have to look again at some of this arm's length stuff and government response ability to supervise it properly well it'll be interesting to see uh what, where, how all this pans out for for, for ed david now, you know they do say for the lib dem sometimes the worst thing is not being talked about but um all publicity is good publicity uh, andrew's been in touch saying the post office situation is many to blame however if the msm had been enraged about it they would never stop to cause mayhem just like they did when boris johnson did not eat a piece of cake it was not headline material glossy and not part of their agenda the msm was much to blame as the politicians which uh I may say so, Andrew, is, is, uh, is bollocks. So uh, if drama isn't changing the world, or maybe it is, what about a petition? More than a million people have now signed a petition calling for the former post office boss, Paula Venels, to lose her CBE over her role in the post office horizon scandal. It's been, uh, the petition's been hosted by the website 38 Degrees. So do petitions ever make any difference? We can speak to the campaign's director of 38 Degrees, Robin Priestley. Hi, Robin. Hello, hello. Nice to see you. So, uh, over a million people have signed it. What difference is it going to make? <laughs> um, I, I think it's already starting to make a difference. Um, I mean, um, we've we've seen um, it's, it's been on the front page of your newspaper for a start. But um, but I think I think the important thing with this is uh, petitions. Um, campaigns often start with a petition, but they rarely end with one. And I think 38 Degrees is a is a campaign organisation. Um, I think a petition is a great barometer of public mood. And I think you can see just how angry people are at the unfairness of this situation. Um, but um, but it will not end with a petition. So I think uh, I think next steps will be, you know, the, the beauty of our, our site is that you can gather. Um, there's a character called David who started this petition, who is a... Uh, computer programmer, as I understand it, and got into the issue because um, he was fascinated by the by the way that the system, the computer system at the post office wasn't working um, and the kind of unfairness that came out of that. And uh, I don't know if you know the, the, the story, but the petition was launched about three years ago, I believe, and uh, and gathered a little bit of uh, a little bit of um, interest and had about a thousand or so 
kind of you know supporters but obviously with the 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 tv show coming out has ballooned in the last kind of like 48 hours like few days um i think it's become our fastest growing petition we've we've hosted it's just tipped into being the biggest uh petition on our site um but I think the the key thing is, is that David now through our tools is able to kind of speak to everyone that signed it and to kind of take them on a journey to make sure that this does end up in impact. Um, and so both for the the kind of tight, kind of more symbolic well, I suppose, campaign. Exactly, I suppose that's the point, point, isn't it? Because there's a forfeiture committee. Actually, if if one person writes the forfeiture committee and says, take a CB off, that's probably going to have more effects, isn't it, than a million people signing a petition on your website? Well, this is the thing is that I think there will now, I would imagine, be hundreds of thousands of people writing to the forfeiture committee. Um, the, the beauty is, is that the petition is a great way of kind of gathering public mood, but then you can channel that into kind of impactful ways. And so I think um, over the next week, we'll be getting people to write to the forfeiture committee, to write to their MPs, to do a whole bunch of other actions on top of signing the petition. But I think petition is a great start. And, and to be honest, I think... Um, Part of the role of our website is to kind of give people who don't have much time and kind of, you know, busy, but to be able to kind of interact in the world of politics and kind of ha and have their voice, you know. Um, we're not just for committed activists, we're for people on the bus who haven't got much time yeah, who are yeah. able to sign a petition on their site, you know, as well. What do you think, Rachel? Do you sign petitions? I don't particularly, but I think it's a way of... Um gauging public opinion isn't it and it can be a very powerful tool as robin says it's it, but it's really about what happens with the petition it's a it's an expression of voters views which is why it's impactful rather than the actual signing of the petition itself well, libby uh, i just wish to slide sideways at the utter utter a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Shamelessness. This woman is an Anglican priest. I think under any other circumstance, you'd sort of expect her to say, look, actually, I didn't clearly do enough services to the post office, therefore have my CBE back. Not a whisker of it. No one's got any shame anymore, not since Lord Carrington is terrible. Libby Purvis and Rachel Vester there, and of course you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk. Up next, it's the exit interview with Chloe Smith. Big thing. We've already said. Chloe Smith is leaving us soon. Goodbye. Born in 1982, she was just 27 when she was elected as Conservative MP for Norwich North in a by-election triggered at the height of the expenses scandal. I was quite notably younger than almost everybody else. In her exit interview, she looks back on a dramatic decade and a half in politics as one of the longest-serving ministers in the government. For me, actually, that was more like... Election, maternity leave, election, maternity leave, election, cancer, pandemic. She recalls that Newsnight interview where she had to defend a fuel duty U-turn by her boss, George Osborne. Probably about half the course, actually, for a junior minister in a department. You know, you, you do do a portion of the rough work. Delivers her verdict on her old bosses, including David Cameron. Good judgment. And Boris Johnson. Mercurial. And reveals her worries about the future. Parliament as an institution will find it difficult to continue to adapt to the ages that we live in. So 
So, Chloe Smith, welcome to your exit interview. A chance for us both to learn what you could have done better. First question then, why are you leaving? For me, it's about looking for uh, some fresh challenges, but it's also actually about a sort of a family decision. So I've had uh, a wonderful opportunity to do a whole series of things in, in, in politics. I've been in for five terms. The um, people of Norwich North, I'm extremely grateful to. They have asked me to do that five times. But actually, for me personally, that's been interspersed with quite a lot of other personal uh, issues, like the last uh, particular series of elections, which I'm sure all of us in politics have experienced quite intensely. But for me, actually, that was more like election, maternity leave, election, maternity leave, election, cancer, pandemic. And in fact, it's time to take stock uh, and do things a little bit differently. Let's go right back to your first time then, because you were elected in a by-election. In 2009, called as a result of the MPs' expenses, yes, which feels like a lifetime ago. Well remembered. Yeah. What was it like coming back, coming into politics at that point? Obviously, the Conservatives sort of riding high in the polls, but politicians in general, not the most popular people uh, in the yeah. world. And you were young, you were sort of yeah. still in your 20s. So what was that like coming into that quite febrile atmosphere? Indeed, it was febrile, and, and you're absolutely right. The the public appetite around politics was was pretty pretty low, pretty angry, and actually, I think rightly so, uh, as it happens. What was also going on, politically speaking, was that there was a, a few by-elections in a sequence, which sort of marked the start of David Cameron's coming into into government. So, inside the kind of Conservative family, there was quite a positive feeling actually around that sequence of by-elections. So, quite a a sort of building feeling of um, uh, the Conservatives being able to carry people's trust and that being shown through the by-elections and, and onwards to the general election. Um, for me personally, as you say, I was 27, I was extremely young. Um, I was baby of the house at the time, yeah. although have now since been roundly beaten, uh, of <laughs> course, for, for that well. particular crown. But, but what that did mean at the time, actually just for that last year before, before that, that then election, was that I... You know, it was sort of somewhat unusual on the on the benches. So not only do you come in obviously at the bottom of the tree in terms of experience, and you've just got to learn a lot quickly, as in any organisation. But also in this case, I was quite you know notably younger than almost everybody else. I think my closest uh, closest fellow Conservative was ten years older than me, yeah. and so I just had to sort of build the relationships that I you know that I could, and and um, of course also turn back around again in about nine months to go back to uh, Norwich North and say, you know, please would you have me again, uh, which I'm delighted that they did and, as I say, have, 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 have done so five times. But all of that happening quite intensely in one go. It's interesting, actually, I suppose we sort of forget that you were elected into the sort of the Michael Howard party yes, elected indeed. in 2005 and, the, you know, the big change didn't come until... Um, 2010. At one point, you know, the, the, you were very young. You were the Daily Mail called you a Cameron cutie. Ah, well, which struck me as I sort of thought that was only 2000. It doesn't feel like it was that long ago, and yet it's, it's quite a dated, a very dated thing. How did all that feel? I mean, <laughs> do you think it's sort of the generation um, before that we had Blair's babes, and you sort of uh, felt we'd moved on from that? You, you would hope that we had moved on from these things, uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, as it happens, I, I personally took some inspiration from David Cameron becoming the leader of mm. our party. And if you remember, he put out the call saying we need more women in our party, we need to modernise our party. And I said, yeah, I'm up for that. You know, count me in. I'd, yeah. I'd like to be part of that. And in due course, that led to being on the candidates list and, and being elected. Um, but yeah, I never had much patience with the whole Cameron Cootie thing and, you know, the associated concepts of the A-list and all that. Do you think, because you came in on your own, mm, in a bar, mm. there was lots of attention on you, yes. and phrases like Cameron Cootie, do you think that held you back in any way, that you were seen as the young novelty MP rather than a part of a cohort that would then rise through the ranks? Well, it's certainly true that as a by-election winner, you are solo. That is, yeah. That's just a, a, a fact yeah. of, of it. And I think there's probably a few of us around the place yeah. who have recognised that fact. And occasionally we band ourselves together, yeah. uh, which, uh, which is the best you can do with that. Um, but I think it's, it's probably objectively the case that, no, it didn't hold me mm. back. I was um, asked quite rapidly to go into government, yeah. uh, into the Whip's office, uh, on the very first day, of course, of, of, of government in, in May 2010, and then onwards straight into, into ministerial work. So I don't think it, it no. could be said to have held me back. 
Um, but what I have said, you know, in other contexts since is that actually, you know, you've got to respond to that challenge. Being, being offered such a role early on means you need to be able to uh, get into it fast, you need to be able to marshal your uh, experience, your credibility, your approach, your achievements in order to repay you know, the trust that yeah. is being put in you. You know, you don't sort of flounce around and say, I'm just the 27 year old, you yeah. do a damn good job if you can. With hindsight, was it mm. too fast? I, I've, I've said in, um, in at least one other context that, you know, there's a few moments of embarrassment that I would look back on in those first couple of years. Right, we we, are, we're all young once. We will, we, well, let, let's, let's, let's deal with this. Let this me was, guess which one you're going to go you for You were first. put in the Treasury, like you said, very quickly, very young. Yeah. Uh, George Osborne was the Chancellor. Indeed. It was a time of austerity and trying to balance the books and so on. Yeah. And... Uh, you got what going to describe as a hospital pass mm. of going on news night mm. after the government had made changed its position on uh, was it on fuel duty? It was, was the, fuel duty. Uh, but you were the one who carried the can, yeah. and you basically got monstered by Jeremy Paxman. Um, how did that happen? Because it felt like it wasn't your fault. You were just the one who was ultimately stuck on the telly. You didn't make the decision. You weren't involved in the decision, but you were the one who basically got got sort of publicly shredded. I think that's probably about accurate. Um, and it's also probably about par for the course, actually, for a junior minister in a department. You know, you, you do do a portion of the, you know, of the rough work and you, you don't, it, well, by definition, yeah. you know, it is not you that is, is uh, uh, accountable at the, you know, at the, t at the top of the tree. Um, I mean, I take a couple of conclusions from it. One is that, you know, you're there to learn hard and fast and improve and you show me yes. somebody else who hasn't improved yes. from their 20s through their 30s through yeah, their yeah. 40s you know I'm pretty uh pretty comfortable as I sit here now and I think I've done a good job over the years but yeah when I was you know early 20s late 20s were there things I could have been better at straight away of course there were yeah. but the other conclusions actually also I mean I think even Jeremy Paxman has drawn them himself which is that you know he didn't always have the most constructive yeah. interviewing style um, and I'll tell you one other thing for free as well, which is that actually it wasn't even the most important thing happening in my week. That week, my father had got a diagnosis of bowel cancer. Oh, wow. You know, there are other things going yeah, yeah. on that kind of knock that into perspective. I'm, you know, very, very happy with the contribution I've made since then in other ways. And the School of Hard Knocks is, <laughs> is fine as a place to start. Um, did George Osborne pick up the phone and apologise for you taking the flag? I'm, I'm going to say no more about it. Some secrets can, can go on. I, I like, like George. That we've, like met no. in, we've met in the years since. I like, I like George. Do you think it made you a better minister, ultimately? I hope so, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And I suppose actually better for it to happen when you were a junior minister and it wasn't really your fault than people being parachuted into the cabinet and having their... You know, we see that in both front benches. Sometimes people who haven't come up through and had some, mm. you know, knocks and blows on the way up through, they suddenly feel very exposed at the end of it. It, it is, it, as, as, you know, probably your and my mother would both say, you know, you put it down to experience. <laughs> yeah, put it down you, to experience. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's talk about your experience there, because yeah, you're so right yeah. that being an MP and a minister, you know, mm. like you said, you're also a human being, and during that period you had children. How did you make that work? We'll come on in a moment to, to how you were later maternity to cover in the Cabinet. How did that work with you fitting? But only politics is not a very family-friendly job at the best of times. Taking maternity leave and feeling able to come back and juggling that. Mm, mm. Was that tough? It is challenging, yeah. And it's, um, I think, as a workplace, it's got many strides to take, actually, mm. until it matches just, in fact, what's normal in, yeah. in most workplaces, most organisations, in terms of supporting uh, maternity or, or parental leave. It's come on, though, in that time, and actually I can say that with, with a, a bit of authority in the sense that I had my first child while a backbencher, my second child while a minister. In that very time, the proxy voting system came in and, yeah. and, and got developed. Um, and then latterly, you know, I've, I've finished my, uh, my work in Parliament by giving maternity cover to a friend in her cabinet position, yeah. you know, which was the first policy department in which we'd done that. A small piece of, of law, in fact, had been changed to allow that a along the journey. So, you know, it's improved. There mm. definitely has been improvement in how Parliament and government does this stuff. 
I think there's still a long way to go, though. And I must say, you know, that that is part of the reasons for me seeking to move on, which is, you know, quite simply, I want to be at the Nativity Plays. I want to do the school run. I think it's really important. I'm not prepared to kind of not be there, you know, in those years of my kid's life. And I'd like to carry on making a contribution, you know, of some significance. But part of that will be in my kids' life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And part of that, I hope, will be in other spheres as well. Just on that, when you were covering science mm. and technology for Michelle Dolan, how does that work? I mm. mean, you, mm. you, the fact your friends obviously helps. Mm. But some days you'd be making a decision. And because, you know, the, ultimate, you know, the, the pyramids government yeah. departments and the minister sits at the top of the, you know, making the decisions. Yeah. So did you have to check with Michelle? Did you second guess? Did she give you a sort of list of do's and don'ts and red lines you know this is when you need to call me this is when you, how did just how did it work when the machine is shoveling stuff up, yeah. the, up the pyramid the whole time yeah indeed um so in part we were kind of putting down the road and driving yeah. on it you know yeah. we were writing the book as exactly because no one we had done it before yeah well not quite true yeah. it had been done before and in actual fact i'm going to give you a trailer here of the fact that i'm writing about this with the institute for government oh, okay. uh, on the sort of history of how yeah. how this works and, and how it can be done in the future so, so it had been done, but actually just not with formal cover. Mm. So there are people in a prior generation who, who you know, had children while serving yeah. in the cabinet, but there just wasn't a formal cover. What Michelle and I did was to take quite a structured approach. Probably that's character-driven from the yeah, pair of us. Yeah. We had a really clear communication from the, from the outset about what we wanted to, to do in that time. And the piece that I brought was to say, do you know what, this is Michelle's job. You could, of course, I mean, of course you could. You could walk into these situations and say, oh, great, you know, I've arrived. I'm going to lord it for 12 weeks. I just thought that would be entirely inappropriate. This is Michelle's role. So my job here is to deliver really smartly and really well on the things that are her, her priorities. So we, we took an approach that, that, that did that. It was fascinating. Hopefully it's, you know, set the path for other people to I feel, so. feel more really able to do so. it. You, you mentioned you're diagnosed with cancer, diagnosed mm. with breast mm. cancer. And I just wondered really, knowing people who've been through that, it's such a huge personal thing. Mm. The fact that on top of that, you have to sort of put out a press release about it and deal with mm. everyone knowing your, your most personal traumatic mm. business. That, that must have been really difficult, but particularly for... You know, I know you're a private person, but you know, knowing that you had to put it put it out in the world, it's not just something that mm. your family can come around you and sort of yes. support you in that way. It's a good observation and, and a, a true a true observation, I think. Um, however, quite quickly it became clear that this was quite a powerful thing because if you are a public figure and you do feel able mm. to use that platform to, to say these things, then a couple of things follow. Some people will will see some comfort in that for themselves, and I, and I I know for sure that there were many because they they came to tell me this, you know that that they had found it really um, reassuring, indeed even inspiring, to be able to see that you know that you can sort of still do what you've got to do yeah. around cancer. I wouldn't, by the way, say that you know my position means that everybody has to work through cancer. Yeah. I was very fortunate to have had a diagnosis mm-hmm. at the start where the doctors were saying, right, this is fixable. Obviously, that puts you in it a different varies. mental position yeah, yeah. To, to, to what many others have to deal with. But the other thing that also happens is you get a heck of a lot of kindness of strangers. And actually, this was lovely, you yeah. know, because as a constituency <laughs> well, you, MP, you yeah. get a lot of people saying Exactly. So, you know. And as a politician, that's yeah. nice. Rare. Yeah, rare. <laughs> Right, we'll, we'll return to politics. We've done a lot of the personal. We'll turn to, we'll turn to the politics. Uh, as it's your exit interview, let's go through some of your bosses, because you've had quite a few, as have all conservative MPs. Sum up David Cameron in a word. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think David Cameron had um, good judgment. I, I associate good judgment with him. Although the biggie is, is you know, was his judgment in the 2016 <laughs> referendum uh, correct? But I think overall he did have that. Um, very good. Uh, what about George Osborne in a word? Well, boss as chancellor, not Bo- boss as yeah, prime minister. Yeah, boss as chancellor. Yeah. Um, clever. Clever. Uh, Theresa May in a word. Diligent. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Boris Johnson in a word. Mercurial. These are excellent words because they sort of could mean anything. Uh, <laughs> well, mercurial actually. I mean, if you want to have the argument, I say that because actually that's kind of the point about about Boris. He yeah. he was very very good at some things. Yeah. Clearly not good at other things and actually in in due course that became his downfall you know his own actions sort of led him there 
but isn't that kind of the point about him? You know, yeah. he, he, he did Just try to do anything yeah, 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 and yeah. everything. Yeah. Liz Truss in a word. Driven. And I've reflected quite a bit on this one. I say driven, in, and I want to be quite specific about this. She was driven to, to achieve high things for, for the country and particularly economically. And what she would say to all of us as, uh, as ministers or as, as members of her team, she would say, how can we do more? You know, here's the level of ambition I want us to be hitting. Can you do that? Can you do more? Can you do more? And, I, and I, so I say driven in a positive yeah. sense because her character was always leading her on like that. Was she too driven? She sort of had her foot on the accelerator too, you know, too much all at once. I think that's probably, yeah, that's pretty well, pretty well documented, yeah. Were you, because you, you, you know, you joined a cabinet as working mm. pension secretary, mm. presumably you went into that, this is all quite exciting, new prime minister, you know, put a draw a line of the Boris Johnson business, yeah. as we'll call it. Um, when did you realise it wasn't going quite as well as you hoped? Well, I think if you if you cast your mind back, actually, I had a, a bit of a front row seat on some of this because if you remember the row about benefits uprating, mm. particularly sort of took life, in and so in my brief, brief I actually yeah. had one of the kind of yeah. you know sort of top. In fact, I remember Penny Morden came on came on my show and said that she thought it should rise in line with benefits. Indeed, everybody had an opinion. Not and government that, policy, uh, quite, well, yeah. and, and so we ended up with a pretty ill-disciplined situation mm. where actually lots of people were yeah. were stating their opinion, and, and you can't work like that. Yeah. So is that is that what you thought? This is not going to hold together. Not necessarily, yeah. but I thought this is. I certainly thought this is. This is not going as it ought to. You know, we've we've got a job to do. Uh, finally, then, uh, Rishi Sunak in a word. Yeah, um, details, Mister Details. In in a, again in a in a, in good, a good way. Point. I think that's a. I think that's a, a character strength of his, and I particularly saw it actually when I, I came in t- to do the science, innovation, and technology role. Um, not only, as I was saying, was I trying to deliver um, you know the program and priorities for Michelle, but actually it was very clear that through mm-hmm. through her, these are the prime minister's kind of personal yeah. you know personal interests and and, and um, uh, hopes. And you know, in him, you have somebody who is always going to look for the the correct detail in a policy. That's a good thing. And somebody, therefore, who's quite you know determined to to, to see it through on, on those bases. Obviously, he's got a pretty tough political situation. There's there's no 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 denying the kind of breadth of that. But he's got some real character strengths, I think. Have you been surprised that things in 2020? You know, he started the year. He had to be the job for very long. He sat his five pledges. His, you know, certainly from the focus groups we did on our shows, if not the polling show, that people were willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. He was cleaning up from what had gone before. Mm. Have you been surprised that it hasn't really, in the 12 months it followed, shifted opinion polls? The public, maybe they just made up their mind after the Boris Johnson Liz Trust business that no one could have shifted it. Have you been surprised that he hasn't managed to find some way of reconnecting with the public? I wouldn't put it quite like that, and so therefore it's not quite yeah, yeah. surprised on, yeah, yeah. On, on, on that basis. It, it, what I think is happening is you've got you know, some really deep-seated problems through the economy still, whether that's the labour market or whether that's inflation, you know, much of which is globally shared, that yeah. is without a doubt true, and much of which is kind of globally sustained, you know, yeah. as the war in Ukraine yeah. particularly you know, con- continues. So you've got these underlying factors that I think are much bigger in people's minds actually than mere politics. And you've also got the situation, and I see this in my own constituency, you know, I see this on the doorsteps pretty clearly, and I think you also see it in opinion polls, where, in fact, there's quite a large number of people who haven't made their minds mm. up yet. And, and that's, as it always is, people don't often turn around and think about politics yeah. until, you know, closer to a, a particular time. And I see a lot of that at the moment. So am I surprised that Rishi has still quite a sort of tough environment in front of him? No, not surprised yeah. by that. But equally, I think it's, it was always going to be a journey of this kind of length because people are, I think, to an extent, reserving their judgment actually about some of these pretty big issues going on. Um, let's round off with some classic exit interview questions. Do you think we equipped you properly to handle your job? Do we as a country, as a political system, make it easy to be an MP and a minister? Uh, yes and no. So yes, in the sense that, you know, if you... Uh, apply for this job and you're lucky enough to, to, to be asked to do this job by, by your constituents, you should have been learning all the time and you should, crucially, have been listening to your constituents and able to absorb their experience and learn from them and therefore be equipped yeah. to go in and serve, serve them. 
Parliament, I think, does do a, a good job actually you know, of, of supporting you know incoming MPs and, and helping them to, to do what they've got to do. Although I do also think that it's a, an institution that will face quite a lot of challenges in the years to come. Does government prepare ministers enough? I mean, I've had two experiences of that. I've been dropped in very quickly and I've been able to go in in a much more considered manner and set out how I'd like yeah. to, to do a role. The latter example being particularly with the interim yeah. um, case of science, innovation and technology. But also actually when I was uh, working towards and, and hoping to to be Work and Pensions Secretary, I've been able to think quite a bit about what I would do, what priorities would be, because yeah. I've been second in um, command in the department before. But in the shorter examples, you know, I mean, the shortest of short is that basically you go in and the next day you're up for oral questions. You know, I've, <laughs> yeah, I've, in fact, I've had that happen twice in my life. I've been reshuffled I've, and then you know, straight into orals the next day. So you just have to be able to be agile. Which bit of the job did you dislike the most? I mean, I think some of the sort of institutional aspects, I will, I will just yeah. go back to this. I, th- I think, um, you know, you touched earlier on about the... Uh, you know some of the ways in which Parliament is kind of classically not not family friendly. Yeah. You know, I do I do worry that Parliament will you know as an institution will find it difficult to continue to adapt to the ages that we that we live in. You know, stuff is moving faster, stuff is more complex, stuff is kind of louder than you know Parliament several centuries ago was was yeah. set up to, to to deal with. I think. In fact, I was reflecting recently on um, the sociobiologist Edward Wilson's phrase that we have Paleolithic emotions medieval institutions and godlike technology uh, and i and i wonder very much about how you know how parliament will continue to be able to be as fleet of foot as i think it's going to need to be to respond to some of these things so have i always enjoyed working in a, an institution that at times can be a bit sort of slow no there's been a few moments where i've looked at it and thought we could we could do better so i'll give you an example yeah. when we came back in stages as we did from from covid there was a point where Parliament had thought about remote voting mm. and used it for a period, which is only right because we were essentially reflecting what we mm. were asking other yeah, workplaces yeah. to do. Um, but then, without a great deal of time and thought, sort of snapped back into its old ways. And, and, you know, and I thought, well, actually, that could have been a moment to reconsider and to think how we could, could do things better. Um, and I, I would have liked it if we had. Would you recommend this to someone else? A friend or a relation, someone you actually cared about. <laughs> <laughs> what a question! Um, yes, I would. And, and in actual fact, this happened just last night. I was I was messaging a, a, an old friend from school, and he put exactly this question. And I said yes because public service really, really, really matters. Just because I'm leaving it, or your other interview, interviewees yeah. are leaving it, doesn't mean there doesn't need to be a really great generation that comes next to take up the baton and do the next round of of service for our constituents. That job will always exist and always be really important. And I I do think that the constituency model, by the way, is is, um, absolutely central to the way we do accountability in this country. You know, you you look people in the eyes as you walk down the high street and you know whether you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. Uh, So finally then, Chloe Smith, what will you do next? Well, I'm hoping to continue with some of the kind of passions I've, I've developed in, in my recent work. So for me, that's the economy, the labour market, it's accessibility and inclusion. One of the things I was really proud of, actually, in terms of, of work done while in Parliament was legislating the British Sign Language Act. Mm. Um, and also, of course, science and technology. And so I'm hoping to be able to continue making a contribution in, in those fields. I'll carry on speaking as well about cancer awareness and some issues associated to that. Um, I mean, I'm only 41, so I'm really just at the midpoint, uh, I think, of life. Um, and I certainly want to be able to, you know, to continue making, as I say, a, a contribution in, in, in those ways. I think I will be um, doing that more in the private sector than in the public, but I also um, have announced a, a charity trusteeship and there'll be uh, one or two more like that that allow me to, to continue actually enjoying the kind of variety that you, yeah, yeah. you do you as do an MP. It yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. A, it's a wonderful thing about the, about the job, but also, crucially, I hope to be able to, to carry on contributing like that. Uh, Chloe Smith, thanks so much for joining us for your exit interview on time. Thank you. And 
if you want to hear the rest of the Exit interviews. We've done about seven or eight now so far. Just search the Exit interviews wherever you're listening to this. Don't forget, get in touch. Email me, matt at times.radio or post a review about my bug-eyed face on the Apple Podcasts app. Uh, but for now, for me, Matt Charlie, it's goodbye. <laughs>